All right, while those are getting dished out, I want to say this on the front end. Uh, if you are new here, if you're a visitor here today, no one set you up, okay? Uh, no one set you up. Uh, we're, in, we're about to read some really hard words, uh, difficult words in the New Testament. Nobody tricked you into coming. Uh, we have been walking through the Gospel of Mark from chapter 1, verse 1, straight through. And God and all His sovereignty uh, brought you here today. No one set you up. No one's tricking you. And so we're about to dive into the Gospel of Mark. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. So today we've made our way to Mark chapter 9, verse 42 through verse 50. Mark chapter 9, verse 42 through the end of the chapter in verse 50. The first thing we're about to do is we're about to read the words of God together. The most important thing that you will hear over the next hour are the next 30 to 45 seconds are what we're about to read together. These are the words of the living God. And so I would just invite you to prepare yourself to hear from God Himself in His Word as we read His Word together. So let's start in verse chapter 9, verse 42. Here we go. It says, Whoever causes one of the little ones who believe in Me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to You And we acknowledge, Lord, that You're the God who wrote this book. You're the God who speaks hard things. And we desire to hear You rightly and to know You rightly, Lord. And we come to You, our Father in Heaven. We draw near to You in the name of Jesus today. And our cry, Lord, our plea, God, is that You would speak to us. God, awaken us with Your Word. God, I pray that You would use Your words today to bring forth profit in this church. In this next hour, Lord, I pray, God, that Your words would come with a sharpness, God, and that You would use, by Your Holy Spirit, Lord, that You would use Your Word to pierce hearts. Jesus, we pray that You would conquer sins in Your church. That You would would conquer them, Lord, that You would break the back of strong sins in Your people. Come purify us, Lord Jesus. God, we pray for any among us today who are lost. Lord, we pray that You would awaken them. God, we call out to You, Lord. This is far beyond the ability of man. We ask You to save. We ask You, Holy Spirit, to warn. Father, I confess to You that I I feel especially warned of misspeaking for You, Lord. And I just pray, God, that You put a guard over my mouth and that You would keep me, Lord. 
and that you would help me to teach your word with the strength that you supply. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, our passage today contains, and we just read it, I mean, this contains some heavy, heavy warnings. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time setting this in the context of the Gospel of Mark. Because this is just flat out Jesus' teaching. This is what Jesus teaches about sin. This is a strong warning from Jesus. And so we're about to read some heavy, heavy warnings. We're about to unpack this of what that means. Okay. Now, I'll tell you on the front end. God intends that we hear His words with a healthy dose of fear. I grew up uh, in an early Christian environment, in, 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 a, in, in an environment that had a defective view of assurance. Maybe you've experienced this. And that the Christian life was anchored in this past action where you did A, and everything was in the past, and from the moment that happens, you're good to go forever. And so every time in that environment, because of this defective view of assurance, every time something hard like this would come up, it was explained away. It was softened. There was a sharp sword that the Holy Spirit carved out and it was ready to pierce hearts and then the blow was softened and the blade was dull. And so, and then, you know, sometime, I'll just commend something to you. Sometime in college, I bumped into this idea. This was my entry point into Reformed doctrine and I bumped into this teaching called the perseverance of the saints. And it was the first time, praise God for this, it's the first time in my life I, I saw of how these hard passages of Scripture fit side by side with righteousness by faith alone in Jesus Christ. They're side by side. You don't have to sharpen the blow. There is a tremendous temptation for us as we come to the warning passages in the New Testament that we want to immediately say, yeah, but that doesn't mean, and I want to say, let's be careful about this. Let's be careful about this. Do not soften the blow of this. Do not blunt the Holy Spirit's sword. This is a sharp sword. And so by God's grace, we're going to walk through this passage and we're not going to do that. We're not going to soften this blow. We're going to let the Word of God accomplish in our hearts what it's meant to accomplish. And we just cry out for that even now as I speak, that we would let the Word of God do what it was intended to do. So two things before we start. Verse 42, I want to tell you on the front end that hard sayings in the Bible, warnings in the Bible, are meant to produce conviction in you. Don't run from this. Don't run from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Don't run from this. Expect it. Embrace it. Conviction is a good thing. If my son uh, lays his hand on the oven, on the top of the stove, and there's a flame there, and he has no recoil, no, no senses to tell him to get his hand off of that stove, that's not a good thing, right? So the fact that he feels pain that says, move your hand, is a good thing, and conviction is a good thing from God. Second thing I want to hit us with before we jump into verse 42, is we need to grow as disciples of Jesus, and we need to grow in our view of seeing the warnings of the New Testament. They're expressions not of the condemnation of God towards us. They're expressions of the grace and the love of God towards us. God warns us because He loves us. Do not ever forget that. This is supposed to be words of love and words of grace from God. We need to learn to see hard things like that. Loving warnings from our Heavenly Father. And so, you live in a culture that has a soft view of sin. You have a sinful nature that is deceived about sin. 
these passages are about to drive a dagger into these false views of sin. They're going to be a hard pushback to your culture and your sinful worldview. Huge pushback from Jesus. And this is what these words are meant to do for us. And so my prayer before we dump into verse 42 is that these warnings would freshly awaken us. Freshly awaken us. Vividly remind us of what, what, our, what our God has called us to as disciples. And so let's start in verse 42. It says this, Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So our passage today starts with the first warning. You're going to get three. Here's the first one. And the first warning for us is Jesus warns us about having a negative effect on other believers. Jesus uses the phrase little ones to describe this group. I want to give you an R.C. Sproul quote here. He says, at first glance, these words seem to be a warning against mistreating children, but that is not the case. So what, it, what do we have here? Earlier in Mark chapter 9, verse 37, Jesus teaches us that whatever we do to other Christians, we do to Christ Himself. And you'll remember that Ryan taught on this last week. Whatever we do to other Christians, we do to Christ Himself. In verse 37 of Mark chapter 9, the phrase child refers not to a literal child, but to every disciple of Jesus. And you see the same exact thing in Matthew 18 in the, in the, in the parallel account of the same story. Jesus is using the child as an illustration, but that phrase child in verse 37 refers to every disciple of Christ. These are His little ones. Now this is not an odd thing for Jesus to speak about His disciples as His little ones. In Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus tells all believers in this room these words. Luke 12, 32 says, Fear not, little flock. Fear not, little flock. So with these words, Jesus includes every believer, every follower of Christ in this word, little one, in verse 42. So the command and the warning here is not to have a negative effect, a stumbling effect on any believer in Jesus. Now, children who believe in Jesus are certainly included in that phrase. But this is a broader category, and there's a broader thing happening in Mark chapter 9, that whatever we do to Jesus' disciples, we do to Christ Himself. In verse 41, Jesus taught us that to give a cup of cold water to a disciple was counted as giving a cup of water to Jesus Himself. The lesson was simple. The good you do to disciples is counted as good done to Christ. This is the opposite example. If you cause a believer to stumble, the bad you do to a disciple of Jesus is counted as bad done to Jesus Himself. This is the teaching. In verse 42, there is a warning that we are not to cause believers to sin. And something interesting happens in Mark chapter 9. He does not use the common word for sin in this verse. He uses the Greek word scandalizo. This is where we get our English word scandalized from. Okay, There's a different word used here. and here's, here's, here's what it means. It literally means to stumble or to fall. In the New Testament, this word scandalizo can be used to describe a permanent falling away from Jesus where someone ceases to believe in Jesus. And that's Mark chapter 4, verse 17. 
It describes someone who makes an initial response to Jesus as a seed that fell on rocky ground, makes an initial response, and as soon as things get hard, as soon as suffering comes, as soon as trials come, they fall away. They scandalize. They refuse to believe in Jesus. That's a permanent falling away. This word can also be used to describe a temporary falling away. In Mark 14, 27, this word is used to describe the disciples of Jesus. Jesus is arrested. Jesus is tried. And Jesus is crucified. And in that moment, it says that the disciples all fell away. For a season, for a temporary season, they fell away from Christ. Jesus warns us here that we're not to have this stumbling effect, whether permanent or temporary, on any believer in Jesus. And then he, and then he adds some vivid vivid language on the back side of that sentence in verse 42. He says that it would be that the punishment will be worse than having a great millstone tied around your neck and dropped in the middle of the ocean. If you scandalize one of his disciples, the punishment for that is worse. So I want you to understand this analogy. A millstone in the scriptures is a stone so large that you have to have an animal to move it. And so we're talking several hundred pounds here. And Jesus says this. He says it is better for this to happen to someone, that they have a several hundred pound stone tied around your neck and then dropped in the Atlantic Ocean, fall all the way to the bottom and drown alive. It would be better if that happened to you than to make one of his little ones stumble. This is a hard warning. Woe to the one who scandalizes the disciples of Jesus. Alright, now one more thing before we move on. This is very important. This word, scandalizo, is in the subjunctive mood in Greek. And that is very important because that, that tells us that this action is intentional. Subjunctive mood means intentional action. This is not an accident. These people are out to trip up the disciples of Jesus. So the warning here applies to all and any who intentionally caused believers in Jesus to stumble. Now, we live in a world that attacks our faith in Christ. Right? Has this ever happened to you? Here's a few examples in case you're asleep to this. Okay? This is Richard Dawkins, two of the most famous atheists in our age. This is Richard Dawkins, author of The God Delusion. Listen to this blasphemer. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. An unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A homophobic, racist, megalomaniac. That is blasphemy to the God that gave this man breath. And he's attacking the foundations of the Christian faith. Here's another one from a man named Christopher Hitchens, the author of God is Not Great. He writes, The Bible contains a warrant for trafficking humans, ethnic cleansing, slavery, and indiscriminate massacre. And then he says, But we're not bound by any of it because it was put together by crude, uncultured human mammals. That's a blasphemer. Our God... Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of His power. Jesus Christ is holding every cell together in that blasphemer's body. And He's using this breath that God has given Him. And He's using this tongue that God has given Him. And He's assaulting His Creator. 
This is blasphemy. And the point of Mark chapter 9, verse 42, is that Jesus Christ does not play games with people like this. He doesn't play games. It's better for a millstone to be tied around their neck and dropped in the middle of the ocean than for what's coming. Jesus warns us that something worse is coming for them. This is a reference to the wrath of God that's going to fall on all the wicked. So this is our first warning. It is tremendously dangerous to have any effect, any intentional effect of inhibiting or destroying the faith of a disciple of Jesus. This is the first warning today. Here's the second, verse 43 through verse 48. It says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So our first warning was about causing others to stumble, but this warning is about ourselves, causing ourselves to stumble. And I hope you would agree with this, that we would be hard-pressed to find much stronger language than this in the New Testament, in the Bible. This is strong, harsh language. And it's meant to do something in our hearts. So we need to listen up. In these verses, don't soften the blow of this. In these verses, Jesus lays a demand on His disciples that they must aggressively fight sin. That's the demand. And He lays them on everyone. And there's a huge warning on the backside of that sentence. Anyone who disregards this demand can expect great punishment. This is the, man, the demand of Jesus. If your eye or your foot or your hand causes you to sin, Jesus Christ demands that you cut it off. You cut it off. This is the Savior's doctrine toward His disciples of how they are to deal with indwelling sin. In Matthew's Gospel, this phrase, this teaching is actually twice. He says it in Matthew 5, says it again in Matthew 18. What does that mean? That means that Jesus taught this more than one time. The, the time that He spent with these men, there was something that He wanted to make sure that they had really clear in their minds, is I demand you, I expect you to aggressively fight sin. If your eye calls you sin, cut it out. Cut it off. He said it more than one time. And so we would be wise as disciples of Jesus to let these words land on us. Jesus demands any sin in your life, He demands that you cut it off. This is not optional. That you cut it off. In verses 43 through 48, Jesus launches three powerful hyperboles to drive home this point. I'll give you a quick definition of what a hyperbole is. It's the use of exaggeration as a rhetorical device or a figure of speech. It may be used to invoke strong feelings or to create a strong impression, but it is not meant to be taken literally. Did you catch that? Jesus used that phrase to create this strong emotion in His disciples, but it is not meant to be taken literally. And we know this. We know that we are not to amputate body parts as disciples of Jesus. 
We know that. In fact, the Bible forbids that we mutilate our bodies. Listen to Deuteronomy 14, verse 1. It says, You are sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves. Don't do that. You're son of God. 1 Kings 18.28 is the story about uh, the false prophets of Baal and the prophet of Elijah. And if you remember what they're doing, 1 Kings 18.28, they begin to dance around this false god's altar and cut themselves. And so mutilation of the body, this is for the prophets of Baal, not for the disciples of Jesus. This is not what Jesus is suggesting, that we mutilate our bodies by physically amputating body parts. And just another layer of this, that wouldn't even work. Okay? It wouldn't even work. Earlier in Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 7, you remember this, Jesus tells us that the root of our problem is within. Out of the heart of man springs forth sin. So catch, catch this thought. We all know that we could start hacking body parts off, right? And we could be one-handed, one-eyed, one-footed sinners. This doesn't work. This doesn't get to the root of our problem. That's an outside-in approach. We need inside-out help from God the Holy Spirit. It wouldn't even work. So, this is not what Jesus meant to physically start cutting members of your body off, just in case you needed a clarification on that. Just in case you needed a clarification there. So that leads us with this question. So what did he mean? Like, let's not just be an expert of what the Word of God doesn't mean. Like, let's, let's, let's lean in and ask the question, well, what does this hard saying of Jesus mean? And here's, on the first thing, this is radical. Okay? This is a radical teaching of Jesus. So don't lose the, the force of this. When we say it's not literal... Don't lose the force and carry it over to interpret this passage. This needs to hit you. This is a radical teaching of Jesus. Jesus is demanding, not physical mutilation, He's demanding that we cut off, kill, crucify, put to death, any and all indwelling sin. Kill sin. Cut it off. The Apostle Paul interprets this teaching for us in Colossians chapter 3. Listen to how similar this is. Jesus' teaching is basically cut it off or you're going to hell. Listen to Paul in Colossians chapter 3. He says in verse 5 and 6, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sound familiar? Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. And then he gives you a list of sins. Listen, sexual immorality impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then he says this, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You see how similar that is? Jesus says, cut it off or you're in danger of hell. And Paul says, put it to death because the wrath of God is coming. This is about killing sin, not about cutting off body parts. Listen to Sam Storms. He says, not mutilation, but mortification is the path to holiness. John Stott says, what our Lord was advocating was not literal, physical self-maiming, but ruthless, moral self-denial. And I think he's right on on that. Not literal, physical self-maiming, but ruthless, moral self-denial. And Jesus in this metaphor uses the phrase feet, hands, eyes. Any, anybody in here... Uh, have dreams at night about 
You know, I, I wish I had one hand. I wish I had one eye. I wish I had one foot. No, you don't. Because the members of your body are valuable to you. They're precious to you. And Jesus' metaphor here is meant to symbolize that the things in life that are precious to us, like limbs of our body, they're not worth having if they cause us to forfeit the kingdom of God. The things that are most precious to us, like limbs of our body, are not worth having if they cause us to go to hell forever. It's not worth it. Nothing that you can imagine in life is worth opposing God and losing God forever. Nothing. Not even hands, not even eyes, not even feet. Jesus' reference to the foot, the hand, and the eye, it's also meant to draw this this all-encompassing picture of your life. And I want you to think about this. In response to these verses, Jesus expects you to examine your life, your entire life, for any and all presence of indwelling sin. Listen to this. Search your entire life. Everywhere you go with your feet. Everything that you do with your hand and everything that you see with your eyes. Do you see how all-encompassing that is? Every single corner of your life, turn it over in search of these temptations to sin, of these causes to sin. In every single corner of your life, the Savior commands us to put it to death. So search your life for sin. I ask you these questions. Are there places that you're going You don't have to answer for anybody else and please don't think about your neighbor in the next 30 seconds. Are there places that you are going that are causing you to stumble? Are there things that you are doing in your life that are causing you to stumble? Are there things in your life that you are allowing yourself to see that are causing you to stumble? That's a searching question. That just turned over every stone. That pretty much everything in life fits under those categories. And we just pray that the Holy Spirit would even begin to reveal sin in our hearts even now. So I want you to make these words personal in your life. What do these questions mean to you? Everywhere you go, everything you do, everything you see, What's popping into your brain right now in your life? And the thing that Jesus is talking about here when He tells them to cut it off, it's probably the thing that's in your mind right now as I'm talking. And maybe there are people in this room, even as I'm speaking right now, that you have in the front of your mind, you have your so-called secret sin. And this is what we call it because we're able to walk in sins that our fellow man doesn't know about. But I'll just remind you that God sees everything. Everything is naked and bare before this God. And He sees your sin. And the Holy Spirit's bringing something to your mind right now. Let the sharp words of Jesus just fall on you. This is to be cut off. This is to be cut off in your life. I want to go a little bit farther with this. I want to sit here for a second. I want to give, I want to give you an example of two sins, specific sins, And and the reason I'm doing this is I'm just asking God to just bear down on us with this word, with this passage, that He would bring fresh conviction to our hearts. And when I say this, I want you to know on the front end that I'm going after, in these next few moments, humble boldness. And here's what I mean by that. 
I do not warn you about sin okay, as someone morally superior to you. I come in humility and I come in service to you. I'm in the trenches with you. I've fallen in sin many times. I don't speak as someone above you or, or superior to you. And at the same time, I'm going after boldness. Because in this place and in this moment, I stand as a messenger of God to you. And I have to speak the truth of God's Word to you that God hates sin. He hates it. I'm asking God to use this as a warning to awaken, to awaken your resolve to fight sin in your life. So the first thing I want to mention is idolatry. It's the sin of idolatry. And I want to remind us that God demands that He hold the supreme place in our hearts. He said that we have no other gods before Him. The greatest commandment in the Bible is that we love this God with everything that we have. So I ought to ask you, what are your idols? God is jealous. Do you know that? He's jealous and He punishes idolatry. This is a wicked sin before God. What are you in pursuit of in your life above your pursuit of God? Surely, in this room, surely, there is someone in this room that's walking in the sin of idolatry. You are bored with God and you relentlessly pursue other things, lesser things than this God. Surely there are some among us. And so the question is, what dominates your thought life other than this God? What dominates the things, your affections, the things that you feel other than this God? What dominates the, your goals in life, what you're going after every single day, your pursuits, than this God? What dominates the way that you spend your resources on this planet other than this God? If there's anything there above Him, those, that's called idolatry in the Bible. And those are false gods. And these are disgusting to God. False gods are disgusting to God. So the question that I want to be in the front of your mind are what are your idols? What false gods are you worshiping? What are you pursuing besides this God? And the second thing I want to mention today is sexual immorality. Sexual sin is a wicked sin before God. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 tells us that this sin is not even supposed to be named among the saints. You know how when you're cooking something, like your neighbor's cooking out hamburgers, and you can smell them like four or five houses away, you're smelling a whiff of what they're cooking And Ephesians 5, verse 3, tells us they're not even supposed to be a whiff, not even a hint. It's not even supposed to be named sexual immorality in God's church. And I just grieve for a moment. Oh my, how we have fallen from that. It's not even supposed to be a whisper, not even a hint, not even a whiff. And you you know, surely you know, in this culture, even this church culture, it's becoming common almost accepted for Christian men to view pornographic images. It's not even supposed to be named in God's church. And I want to approach you in in love and in boldness. And I want to remind you today that God hates sexual immorality. He hates this. This is offensive. If it's in your life, this is offensive to God. And I want to remind you as a disciple of Jesus, you have no business walking in this wicked sin. You have no business walking in this wicked sin. So, you see this screen behind me? 
You see this projector here? Let me ask you this question. I want to get real for just a moment. What if I threw on this projector here your internet activity over the past month of your life? And I threw it up here and it were open to view of every, uh, to God and every brother and sister in this room, your internet activity in the past month. Would that bring shame? Is that something that would bring shame to you as this sin that you walk in, would, get, would it be exposed? Are you walking in purity as a man of God? Now I ask the question to single men, married men, single women, and married women. What if we played your thought life in that same projector screen and we projected the images that you roll through your mind in front of all to see? Are you walking in sexual purity? Or do you fix your mind on forbidden things that God hates? Things that God has forbidden in His law? Are you walking in sexual sin? So those are your questions. And I... And I want to ask you now, do you have sin on your mind? Do you have something that's in the front of your mind? And I pray that you do. I pray that the Holy Spirit lights this place up like a Christmas tree and reveals sin and convicts us of sin. I pray that you do. The only other option is that it would be hidden, that it would stay down, and that it would never be revealed. So I pray that God has freshly convicted you of any sin if this is necessary for you. So I want you to think about your sin. Habitual sin, secret sin, it's in your mind. Now I want to remind you of these words, and I pray that these fall like a hammer on you. Jesus Christ demands that you cut it off. That you cut it off. This is His demand towards us. You are responsible to take immediate, drastic action towards your sin. This is the demand of Jesus. You are not to make peace with sin or negotiate sin or go to therapy or coddle your sin. Jesus said, cut it off. This is radical language from the Savior. You are to kill it. And I want to warn you not to try to deal lightly with this sin. I know many people, myself included, that have at times in my life I played games with trying to cut off sin. And we have a sinful nature that's deceived about the deceitfulness of sin. And we try to rid ourselves of sin with the least amount of inconvenience on our lives. So what do you mean? I said, I, 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 can't, I can't even remember how many times that, that a brother would confess to me sexual immorality, something on the internet. And I lean in in love to this brother and I say, brother, is, it, is this by any chance happening on this thing called a laptop? I say, yeah, man. It is. And then the next question is, well, you know, too bad you don't, you don't get to have a laptop anymore. And then the backpedaling starts, right? Because, I, I mean, that would be an inconvenience to me because, like, I need a, I need a laptop and I need this, this phone. Do you see the justification of sin? Or a brother would confess that he pours himself out in idolatry in his work and his job. 60, 70 hours a week he's neglecting his family. And you lean in in love to be... Uh, uh, to, to love this brother in truth and you lean in and you say, brother, what's your plans to cut this sin off? What's your plans to restrict your hours at, at this job or maybe even look for a new job if this is an idol, like you said it was an idol, and the backpedaling starts, right? Of, well, yeah, it's more of a heart issue and, and nothing in my life really needs to be rearranged. Do you see the deceitfulness of sin? Do you see that? 
We are going to be tempted to deal lightly with sin. To try to rid ourselves of sin without turning our life upside down. This is a, this is the, a deceit. And I want to let John Owen wake us up this morning. Listen to this famous quote. This is from his book, Sin and Temptation. He says, He that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he strikes and leaves before the other ceases living, he does but half his work. Did you catch his analogy? He said, if, basically, if you were to hire an assassin during warfare, and his job was to go and kill someone, and that assassin walks in the room, stabs somebody in the chest, and thinks he's dead and leaves, if that guy lives, that assassin failed his job. And if you stab at sin and play with, it, with sin and don't cut it off, you failed. You've fallen short of the demand of Jesus. He said kill it. Put it to death. He didn't say stab it. He said kill it. He didn't say scratch it. He said cut it off. This is radical. This is radical. It's extreme. It's aggressive. And listen up. This confirms that you are saved. This is a salvation issue for you. This confirms, this radical warfare on sin confirms that you are a Christian. We're going to dive into this more. Things that we value highly like hands and eyes and feet are not to stand in the way of eternal life. Whatever in our lives tempts us to disobey God must be discarded. Just like a surgeon. Got some medical people in here. You got an infection, crazy infection in the hand and in the leg. They amputate. Why? To save life. And the same principle here, we are to cut it off. If we neglect this, Jesus warns us that we are on a sure path to hell. That's what the passage means. Can't mean anything else. Clear teaching of the passage. Again, John Owen sums up Jesus' teaching here with this famous phrase. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So let this be a reminder to you of 1 Timothy 6.12. It says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. If you want to enter into eternal life with God, you must fight the fight of faith. Listen to J.C. Ryle here. He said, There is a fight which everyone who would be saved must fight. A Christian is a man of war. There are thousands who name the name of Christ that you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. And then he says, but there are no promises to the seven churches in Revelation except to those who overcome. We must fight the fight of faith. Now I am really, really aware that when I said a moment ago that this is a salvation issue, that this can, this can land strangely on your ears and this can be very easily misunderstood. So I want to very clear, very clearly try to clarify what I mean and at the same time I want to warn you about habitual sin. Here's what I mean. This conflict with sin that Jesus just demanded in Mark 9. This conflict with sin that Jesus just demanded confirms that we have been regenerated into new creations in Christ. I'll say that one more time. This conflict with sin that Jesus demands confirms that we have been regenerated into new creations in Christ. And Paul describes the believer's internal warfare with his two natures, the new man and the old man. Listen to Galatians 5 verse 17. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other. Do you see the tension there? There's inner conflict. There's inner warfare. Every Christian experiences this internal tension towards sin. If there is a lack of internal tension towards sin, it proves that you don't have the Spirit of God in you. This is what this means. J.C. Ryle says, where there is grace, there will be conflict with sin. Where there is grace in the heart, there will be conflict with sin. So here's the warning. That's what it means, and here's the warning. Three different times in this passage. Jesus says, if blank causes you to sin, cut it off. That's the same Greek word, scandalizo, as we talked about earlier. Except this time, that word is used in the present tense and suggests continual action that doesn't stop. That is very important to what we're teaching here. If there is anything in your life that's causing you to walk around in sin, present tense, continual action, if you don't cut it off, you're going to go to hell. This is the teaching of Jesus. This is a warning about habitual sin. At some point, sin in your life becomes more than, oops, I stumbled. It becomes a habit, a practice. Hebrews 3 says you can even be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So this is a warning that we must make war on sin. And I want to warn you this morning that you would beware of continuing on in habitual sins in your life. You need to feel the weight of this warning from Jesus. You need to feel the weight of that. This is not salvation by works. This warfare with sin, it only confirms that the Spirit of God lives in you. This is not salvation by works. Jesus is telling us that people who are genuinely saved don't continue on in habitual sin. This is the same thing taught in the rest of the New Testament. Listen to Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, idolatry. I'll say a few of these stripes, jealousy, fits of anger, envy, drunkenness and things like these. I warn you again, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, present tense, continual action again, those who do such things, who walk around in such things, who make these things their practice, will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the plain teaching of the verse. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. These verses do not teach that a Christian can't sin. They don't even teach that a Christian won't sin. The exact opposite of that is true in the Bible, that we will have sin until we see Jesus. But what these verses teach is that a Christian cannot, will not ever continue in habitual sin. Same verb tense, present tense, continual action. You will not walk around in sin. You will not walk in habitual sin. 
The Christian's life is to be marked by habitual righteousness, by a practice of righteousness. If not, God's seed, the Holy Spirit, does not abide in us. This is not salvation by works. This is confirming that you're saved. So this sin in your life, this so-called secret sin, you must deal ruthlessly with it. Ruthless. It is impossible for you to be too aggressive and too ruthless with your indwelling sin. It's impossible. You're to cut it off and to kill it. Only false converts will ignore Jesus' warning here to make war on sin. Only false converts will ignore Jesus' warning here to make war on sin. Listen to Romans 8.13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. No one else can do this for you. Your spouse can't do this for you. Pastors can't do this for you. You have to make war on sin. And Jesus has commanded this that you would radically respond to sin in your life. And if you ignore this, according to Jesus, you are a great fool. Because three times in this passage, He gives us the same warning. And it is heavy. Listen to verse 43. Three times. Verse 43 says, Go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Verse 45 says to be thrown into Hell. Verse 47 and 48 say to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is very clear here. The one who ignores Jesus' command to make war on sin. The one who walks in habitual sin, who practices sin. No warfare, no conflict towards sin will lose their soul forever in hell. This is the warning of Jesus. This is the clear teaching of of Jesus, and he says it three times to drive it in. So, these three times, Jesus uses this Greek word, Gehenna, to describe hell. Now, that's a different word than what's normally mentioned, than the words Sheol or the words Hades, and it's more vivid, it's more disturbing, this word Gehenna. Jesus takes this word straight out of the Old Testament. Gehenna is a valley outside of the city of Jerusalem. And just really quick, we'll go over this. At one of the lowest points in Israel's history, during idolatry, they were were sacrificing children to this false god called Molech. And they were doing it in this valley called Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnon in the Old Testament. King Josiah comes in and he starts turning things upside down for God. He starts reforming this nation. And part of what King Josiah does is he takes this place where this wicked sin was practiced and he turns it into Jerusalem's garbage dump. Gehenna. As time rolls on and Jesus comes on the scene, first century Judaism, Gehenna is now a massive garbage dump. And the city of Jerusalem would dump their trash and dump their garbage in, in Gehenna. And then as it piled up, you know, they would set fires to it and they would burn it down to ashes. This was a place of filth and garbage. It was a place of burning and ashes and smoke. Jesus uses this to describe 
what the final punishment of God on the wicked will be like. It will be like Gehenna. Except Jesus goes one step further than this by quoting the last verse in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 24 says this. He says, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against Me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. These words, Jesus paints a vivid picture of the ceaseless torment of the wicked. God's going to punish the wicked, and He's never going to stop. It's going to be eternal. It's going to be a place of garbage, a place of filth, and a place of burning. And let me just say this. It, it, is, it is impossible for us not to interpret this imagery as physical pain. The Bible teaches that the righteous are going to be resurrected. Daniel chapter 12 also teaches that the, the wicked are going to be resurrected. So the just and the unjust will be raised before God. They will have a physical body in eternity. Hell is going to be a place of unceasing physical pain, torment. Never stops. Never stops. According to Jesus, hell is real, it's terrible, and it lasts forever. And I think it's safe to, for me to say in this moment right now that the absolute worst thing that could ever happen to a human being would be that you would go to hell forever. And that you would experience this wrath of God. It's the worst thing that you could possibly imagine. And then a million times worse than that. Verse 49 and 50. We'll close. It says, Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This culture that Jesus is in couldn't survive without salt. It was a basic commodity. It was essential to their life because salt was a preservative in this culture. It, it kept food, meat, especially from ruining. They needed it. Therefore, salt is good. Okay? It helped them preserve food. It helped them keep food from ruining. Salt is good. But some salt from the Dead Sea was known to be useless because it was mixed with other chemicals like gypsum, which you make sheetrock out of, this gypboard. Gypsum was mixed in with the salt and it was impure. Okay? What Jesus does here is He says salt is only good as long as it serves its purpose. But if its purity is compromised, if its saltiness is compromised, then it loses its preserving value and it becomes worthless. This is the analogy. Jesus is using this salty salt analogy as an object lesson for us. And let the context of, of all we have dived in so far, let that context interpret exactly what this means. Our saltiness is determined by our allegiance to Jesus, our faithfulness to Jesus, our response to Jesus and His Gospel. Salt is a preservative. And as a follower of Christ, we are the ambassadors of Jesus in this world. We have a role to play in this world. Like salt. And the analogy is simple. The loss of our saltiness makes us worthless in this world. And Jesus' point is that unless we remain faithful to Him, unless we remain faithful to Him, our lives will have no preserving value in this corrupt world. So let that be a heart check for you today. 
How salty are you as a disciple of Jesus? Jesus warns us here of worthless salt. And this ought to fall in its context and make a lot of sense in light of what we just looked at. Worthless salt is someone who refuses to respond to the demands of Jesus in a habitual way. So, I want to finish up and I want to say, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And I told you on the front end that this is heavy, heavy language in the Word of God. You have been confronted today with the most frightening reality in the entire universe. So maybe you're here and that's you. And I want to ask you, have you ever considered where you will be 100 years from today? Have you ever considered this? In 100 years, the Bible teaches that you will be one of two places. The Bible also teaches that you will be conscious, that you will know where you're at. You're not going to float away into oblivion. You're either going to be in heaven or in hell a hundred years from now. The bad news for us is that the Bible teaches that God, the just judge, has promised every sinner to punish their sins. The bad news further is that every single human being has sinned against God, the judge. The Bible teaches that the default destination for every single human being is not the good place, but the bad place. We've offended God the judge. And so the bad news for us is unless something happens, we are headed to this place called hell. This place of everlasting burnings. The place of hell is where God's final judgment on unforgiven sin is laid bare forever. Unforgiven sinners will be punished forever and ever and ever. But the good news for us is that there is forgiveness with this God. There's a way to be forgiven of your sins. God has provided a way. He's made a way for us to be forgiven. Jesus has come as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Christ died on the cross for our sins as a substitute in our place. The wrath of God was poured out on this atonement lamb as a substitute for us. This is the good news of Jesus. The most horrible place that you could ever imagine. Times one million was poured out on this lamb of God in your place. And he really died. Jesus really tasted death and He was buried. They put Him in the, in the tomb and then three days later, Jesus was raised triumphantly from the dead. And even today, Jesus as the King of kings demands that you repent of your sin and He promises you that if you trust Him, if you believe in Him, that you will never, ever, that you will never encounter this place. You'll be forgiven of your sins. So I just plead with you for a moment that you would flee from the coming wrath of God before it's too late. There's a moment when it's too late. And I would plead with you to turn towards Jesus. Listen to His words. This is John chapter 5, verse 24. This is the words of Jesus to you this morning. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Praise God for that promise. Never taste death if you trust in Jesus. And I look around this room, and almost every week I'm confronted with this reality that mostly, mostly in this moment, I'm surrounded by my brothers and sisters in Christ. 
I'm surrounded by people who have been saved, redeemed by the blood of this Lamb that we just talked about. And so for you today, I hope, I pray that God the Holy Spirit has freshly warned you, that you feel freshly encouraged to fight sin, to war against sin in your life. But I also pray that today that you are freshly reminded that Jesus Christ has saved you from the most terrible reality that you could possibly imagine times a million. So as we close, I want to read you some words about hell. And the reason I'm reading, this is what Jesus has done for us. This is the place that He has ripped us from, ransomed us from. This is Jonathan Edwards. Listen closely. He says, Consider what it is to suffer extreme torment forever and ever. To suffer it day and night from one year to another. In pain and wailing and lamenting, groaning, shrieking and gnashing your teeth. With your bodies and every member racked with torture. Without any possibility of getting ease. To know assuredly that you shall never be delivered. And after you have endured these, these torments millions of ages, without rest day and night, you shall have no hope. You shall only know that you are not one moment nearer to the end of your torments. The smoke of your torment shall ascend up forever and ever. And Jesus Christ reaches down and rips us from the burning, from the everlasting burning. This is what He's done for us. We have been saved from the wrath of God. Praise God. And so I pray that this is a reminder for us that we bow down and we worship this Christ who has saved us. And I got good news for you. And in the next few minutes, we're going to sing that, that song, Stronger Again. And we're going to have a chance to, to herald to God that you are stronger than my sin. You, hallelujah, you have saved me. And I pray that God would be glorified if we sing that to Him. So let's pray together. Lord, we come to You and we pray, God, that You would be forever praised from our hearts and our mouths for what You've done. Be exalted, Lord Jesus. Be exalted, Lord Jesus. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for saving us. We pray, God, that You restore to us the joy of the salvation, the joy of being ripped from the fire. God, and even in this moment, Lord, I just I remember, God, that this is what this is what I merited. Eternal punishment. This was the righteous judgment. And so the fact that we're saved, the fact that we know you, the fact that we're forgiven, this is free grace from you, Lord. Unmerited. We praise You for what You've done. Lord, we ask, God, that You would help us to make war on sin. That You would exalt Your holy name in our life. We pray this in Your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.